get ready, guys. I will have a new impersonation that I will be debuting. <laughs> a new character for me to slip in when you're like, hey, I think this guy's only going to be a 38-minute episode. Can you just kind of do a bit for about 15 minutes, Jake? I don't know. Maybe stretch <laughs> it out a little bit. Walk it out. Carry us through, Jake, as you always do because you're the star of the show. Could you just kind of like do an impersonation? And, you know, sometimes I do, you know, dueling impersonations. But, guys, I got a new character, and it is Dean Malenko. Because I, I have been around Dean Malenko enough now to get the voice down, just like the Iceman. <laughs> Here's the funny part. He's actually hysterical. Because no lie, me and Dean Malenko, we were like a comedy team until I hit record on the fucking camera. Uh, I don't know how this man, why this man refuses to be as funny as he is. And then as soon as he sees the red light, he stops. I don't understand what's in him. I wish the conversation I had before we started, like, our fireside chat, I wish I had that on tape because I could release that. It was the funniest thing in the fucking world. <laughs> the man is full of one-liners, and he doesn't take himself too seriously. And he had a very long day with us when we brought him into High Spots, and we had him sign so much stuff, so much stuff. Which is a concern with his health. I don't think it's a secret. He has Parkinson's, so we were a little concerned. Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah we were a little we were a little concerned how an autograph signing with someone like that was going to be. And Dean was a trooper. He he completed Damn. just about everything. But there was like a stack of fifty pictures, and it was late night. We kept him on camera an hour longer than we we said we were going to because that's what Michael does. Classic. <laughs> Basically, I was asked like, "Hey, do you think you could sit down and?" knock out these last 50 pictures this man took this the, the chair that he would be sitting in to knock these 50 out and it was a folding chair he folded it up and slid it underneath the table and he's like i'm not sitting Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you! i love i love it's like hey can you just sit down for like a few minutes he goes can't now like that's nope. just <laughs> that level of comedy and that level of like he could just say, like, no, I'm done, or he could be a dick about it. I say, if you're going to be be like, hey, I'm not going to fucking do that, you might as well have come with a joke. That's always yeah. my rule of thumb. If you're going to be like, yeah, man, not going to fucking do that, at least make the person smile when you tell them that. Like, it's just what well, I love D. Malenko. Also, too, he told a whole bunch of Eddie Guerrero stories on nice. my up upcoming Fireside Chat, so that was my research. I mean, I could have I talked to George South for this episode, but I chose to... Talk to Dean Malenko. I hope that's okay. I hope that's okay, guys. I hope that's okay. Just want to make sure. I mean, well, we also have some Eddie Guerrero stories for you today because this is Tim Bell Pod. I'm Nick Alexander, joined live via satellite by Micah J. Loving. Fun detail about us recording on this day. Tonight is my 20-year high school reunion, and I'm not fucking going. And this is kind of a sidebar. Jake, you going to go to your 20-year high school reunion? I'd have to drive halfway across the country <laughs> to go to my high school reunion to see my graduating class of 21 people. Hey, that's a good point. Do you have any idea how goddamn stupid <laughs> that is? Nick, you going yours? Huh? Uh, absolutely not. And that Dean Malenko-like voice over there is, of course, the man scout, Jake Manning. That's right. I'm the man of a, a thousand tent stakes. <laughs> <laughs> you had a brilliant opportunity, Nicholas, and now I've got the best intros this week. <laughs> 
So if Eddie Part 1 was about a young Jedi learning the ropes, and Part 2 was the evil WCW Empire striking back, that only means today can be Return of the Jedi. Which part is where all the internet gets pissed off and acts like man babies and complains about our episodes? That will be part four if we end up doing a Phantom Menace. Cool. I can't wait for that part. No, the, yeah. God, do you not pay attention? Phantom Menace is episode one. This would be episode <laughs> six. And also, too, guys, we all know this is not Return of the Jedi. This is Return of the Mac. That's what this is. It's the Return of the Mac episode. <laughs> So when we last left our hero, Eddie had just formed a rebel alliance with Dean Malenko, Pegasus Kid, and Perry Saturn, narrowly escaping Darth Russo and the soon-to-be-exploded WCW Death Star as they traveled through the pro wrestling galaxy to land on planet WWF. Jesus Christ, you did all of it. Who are the Ewoks, (laughs) though? Who are the fucking Ewoks? Cruiserweights. I ain't no Ewok. Such a a thousand holes. So, Eddie and friends showed up on January 31st, 2000s. Raw is war during a match between Team Head Cheese and the New Age Outlaws. Yeah. Road Dog ends up getting pushed over to where they're sitting. They start jawing at each other. They get in a fight. They get in the ring. What do you guys think about this debut? If you listen closely, I think you can hear them talk shit about how Brad Armstrong is the better Armstrong, and that's how the fight started. So, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Well, that is correct. Um, also, too, all of the clothes that those guys were wearing still holds up today. Like that, I, I, you know, fashion from the year two thousand, especially anybody from the WWE roster, whatever they were wearing on camera holds uh-huh. up today. Holds up today. Leather pants. 100%. With a leather, like, I don't know, type hat that Saturn was always fucking wearing at that period of time. He was um, fashionable. I don't know how much, like, warmth that gives you, but I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot and see how it all works out. Also, I need one of those weird orange kind of tiger stripe, but crushed velvet type shirts and buttoned down, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I need. Or, or have a tucked in black t-shirt with an ice uh-huh. belt buckle, black boots. That's, that's another, another go-to. I still go to today. Eddie said he was a little concerned that the WWF crowd wasn't going to really know who they were, but, you know, he hits his frog splash, Pegasus hits the headbutt, and the crowd is going apeshit here. Uh, On the RF video shoot, he's asked what his main memory is, and Eddie's like, oh, that's easy, slipping on the fucking top turnbuckle (laughs) during my frog splash. Because Eddie is wearing cowboy boots to be in the fashionable way that Jake was talking about. And when you watch it, it it did throw me off because Eddie slips. He still hits the frog splash. He's not off by anything. But Eddie comes down so fast when you watch, you're like, yeah, that's not a typical Eddie frog splash. He shows he can do it in cowboy boots, fuck up, and still, you know, not truly botch it. They walk back up the entrance ramp, and as they cut to commercial, JR mentions how totally radical they were. And that would be their stable name. Come back from commercial. There's Mick Foley who takes the credit for bringing them in, and, you know, kayfabe wise. They poke some fun at WCW and then they immediately start a little beef with Triple H. Yeah, seeing Eddie uh, beat down Triple H, that was, that was nice. The Radicals had to prove themselves to Triple H and Stephanie if they wanted a contract. And on February 3rd, SmackDown, they had a best of three against DX. Malenko took on X-Pac, Redacted faced Triple H, 
and Eddie's role would be teaming up with Saturn to take on Jesse James, badass Billy Gunn. But during this match, Eddie would suffer yet another career setback when he hit Billy with a frog splash, landing awkwardly, popping his left elbow out of socket. And as soon as he lands, you're like, oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember watching this live, and then when he lands, and yeah, he just freaks out immediately. You see something is wrong, and it was just that, oh, God, no, why? <laughs> why? It is so heartbreaking to watch, because Eddie's panic is palpable, man. Also, too, uh, like, you got to think about, you're coming from WCW. I mean, it, it's something that's talked about a lot in interviews and podcasts, and especially, like, old-timer shoot interviews. Like, they were just trying to bury everybody who came Damn. from WCW, and, like, whether that was true or not, that's a debate they have on something to wrestle, and we'll let them have that. But you can't deny the fact that that's a discussion that's happening in the locker room, rightly or wrongly, because pro wrestlers are paranoid, and some of them are conspiracy <laughs> theorists, and not good conspiracies that they believe in, like Flat Earth. Um, So that is a conspiracy that is in probably all four of these men's minds when they make their debut and actually wrestle on the show and thinking that any second of time they're gonna they're gonna bury him and i'm sure other guys in the wwe locker room themselves are are, are fueling that fire as well like hey be careful out there because they're gonna try and fuck you over i mean that's something that's probably discussed and winding these guys up and somebody who is as volatile as eddie uh, that's one of the things that uh, my good friend, D. Malenko, I don't know if you know it. I don't know if I've said that or not. Me and, <laughs> I, I heard, me and Dean are friends. I've heard. I I heard or not. But um, that was something that, that Dean brought up a lot is that Eddie would just, rightly or wrongly, like he had so much passion and emotion about things and he could get wound up really easily, which if it is in your benefit, you want somebody that passionate. But if it is coming at you, that is the last thing that you want to deal with. So he's somebody that wears his heart on a sleeve. I'm sure probably somebody came up to him earlier in the day like, hey, man, be careful. They might try and fuck you over out there on live TV. You never know. Just be careful. And, you know, the idea of like you could be cut and fired at any moment in time and then going out there and this minor accident happens you're like oh man they're gonna yeah. fire the, the idea of not only am i hurt they're probably gonna fire me or they're gonna they're gonna cut my money like i said just all the paranoia gets into pro wrestlers minds because we have a weird conspiracy mind in ourselves even though we're conspiring to convince the audience that we are in an actual legitimate fight it's weird how we just fall into books conspiracies <laughs> so there's layers so this is what i'm trying to say it's not just ouch my elbow hurts he's thinking about his family and how he's going to provide for them because you know the legendary story is basically eddie just walked in heard the guys were quitting and he goes i'm gonna quit too and <laughs> sure, just, uh, sure and then had to explain that to his wife and family the first day i was a sous chef I dropped an entire container of soup on the floor. Cool. <laughs> That's what this reminded me of. I was just like, <laughs> should I just leave now? <laughs> like forever? Because <laughs> like, I fucked up like immediately. I'm yeah. done. I'm done. <laughs> so this injury would put Eddie out of action for a month, but he didn't miss a single show. He'd come out wearing a sling, usually loaded with a lead pipe, and then he'd help the Radicals turn hill the very next Raw when they jumped Mick Foley. Pegasus went off to the main event while Dean Perry and manager Eddie feuded with Too Cool and Rikishi. Eddie spent the weeks leading up to WrestleMania 16 healing up and then using his lead pipe to help the Radicals get wins where he could. I think that's the same strategy that Ted Bundy took, so good job, Eddie. Eddie would be back in time for his first ever WrestleMania, and we talked about this match on China's episode. Eddie really lets her get her shit in, brother. Dude, it's even an understatement. China power bombs his ass, 
testicular gorilla press, the sleeper bomb or whatever the fuck that thing was that China did. He just lets her do everything and makes her look like a million bucks. Because I guess Eddie in the back of Eddie's mind is like, I mean, this might make me look bad now, but shit. In the long run, I'm Eddie Guerrero. Well, I think... I don't know if we talked about it too much in China's episode, which, by the way, I apologize for the China episode. Probably the worst one I've ever done. So you guys are fantastic. I sucked a dick. Uh, (laughs) So uh, something we didn't really explore with China too much, but more I think about it, especially after like kind of processing with a clearer head some of the China matches and also think about my my time growing up as a fan, because this is right in my heyday of being a fan. China was such a big star like she was such a great attraction you paid attention anytime she was on the screen you paid attention anytime she did anything the idea of her wrestling i have vivid memories of like oh this is incredible this is great china's so good but now as a 17 year veteran of the professional wrestling business of the in-ring wars um she was not good just let you guys know she (laughs) was not ready for that spot but she had she had the juice behind her, but as far as like end ring and the ropes, I think she got good, especially when she was wrestling in New Japan. You look at some of the clips there; those those were pretty good, and it'd be interesting to see if China would have continued on a path of wrestling or indie wrestling being a little bit better. It would be interesting to see how she evolved. Like if Shimmer was around at the right time and she was in the right headspace, it'd be interesting to see how that would evolve. But at the time that she was super popular at this particular time she was super fucking over and super fucking green and on national fucking television and something that happens with really great wrestlers and it's only great wrestlers and and guys that are just the the best wrestlers that everybody respects is they see someone like china who's got all this juice behind them and as opposed to being bitter and angry and mad about it they forcibly put themselves in a position where they get to wrestle that person you saw it with chris jericho with the intercontinental feud that they had you know chris jericho wanted to be in that spot to prove to everybody that hey I can work with China. And you know also right. as, a, as a wrestler that people will react every time that, that she does something. So that's great. You're already at an advantage, but you're at a disadvantage of her skill set. So you got to play to her strengths, and you got to figure out what those strengths are, address them, and then in your, in your wrestler mind, in your conspiracy theory mind, you're thinking this is going to prove to the office that, hey, if I can work with China, Imagine what I can do with The Rock, yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. I can make them look like stars. But in the office's mind, they're like, no, nah, fuck you. Trying to beat the shit out of you. We don't give a fuck yeah. about you. <laughs> but in our dumb wrestler minds, we think we're doing the right thing. And we are. But the, the man who sits at the top of the ivory tower is like, oh, good. You made her look fantastic. Let's bring her up. Let's shoot her higher. Let's push you fucking down. Let's have you make Brian Christopher look good. I don't know. So... <laughs> Sorry, Brian Christopher, you weren't a bad guy to me ever, but you were kind of fucking weird to me. And, you know, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Also, right around this time, and specifically this match, is when you really see Eddie getting a chance to separate himself and really show that charisma that was always there. And just the, the little winks and the little moments he has with China in the ring and how WWE actually capture those well and uh, creates those moments. It's You can really see Eddie separating himself and becoming the dude that he would blow up to be later the raw after mania 2000 on april 3rd big night for eddie he'd do a few things first he cut a promo calling himself latino heat 
he get his hands on his first WWE title belt when his new Mama Sita turned on yeah. turned on Jericho and helped Eddie get the win. I love the part in the shoot interview because I just love hearing where different artists take different things and use them as inspiration. And that uh, Eddie got Latino heat from the movie The Birdcage, which I think there's a there's a moment where Nathan Lane talks about his Guatemalan heat, and Eddie just adapted that to Latino heat. And then one of the biggest wrestling gimmicks ever was born, thanks to the birdcage. Can we just, like, take a second and do what I'm doing in my mind right now? (laughs) Picturing Eddie Guerrero being like, hey, this is a Robin Williams film. Yeah, man. How about I watch this movie, The Birdcage? (laughs) Hey, Vicky, you want to watch this birdcage? It's on HBO. Like, and just Eddie holding a remote. And he'd be like, oh, let's watch this. You know, like, I don't know. Or like him getting yeah. the TV guy and like, oh, the birdcage is on. Let's go. Like, Robin like, Williams. Robin Williams, right? Like, I, you can't go wrong. This new Nathan Lane guy, I love him in everything that he's in. Remember when we almost saw him in a Broadway production of The Producers, honey? He's a great guy. Like, it just we, we were this close to seeing him. So, Vicky, come on. Robin Williams is on the television set. Get in here. Come on, Vicky. Get out of there and put your arm around you. This is a great movie. Oh, that's a good line. Maybe I'll show you later. Am I right, Vicky? <laughs> and I just know it was the it was the Saturday night HBO 8 o'clock movie because that was Marquee and Eddie's Marquee. Now European champion, Eddie would begin his first big angle here, pairing up with China. And he said he had a lot of fun at first, but as she started going through, you know, like her breakup with Triple H and some of her personal problems, she became a little more difficult to deal with, which I I guess is pretty understandable. Eddie also talks about how at the time, like Nick said, that he just kind of, he didn't understand her and he didn't see where he was coming from. But later, when he had his own demons, he it put it all in perspective for him, and it, it really kind of helped him retroactively bond with China in a weird way, but it, he, it made him see the light once he went through his own fucked up stuff. I mean, that's the thing, too. She's she's going through a lot right now trying to process fame. Also, too, like, I would, you know, believe that she's probably heard the whispers that people were like, oh, she's not that good. She doesn't deserve the spots she's in. And then also, too going through what she's going through on a personal level, it's tough as a performer, as an artist. And I don't know, this is something that I go through and gets me in the weird head spaces that I get. Being not good enough for a large group of people and then also not being good enough for some interpersonal relationships somehow hurts on the same level. Feeling like not rejected by your peers or hundreds of people or thousands of people and then at the same time, too, not, not being accepted by just one person, it hurts equally the same. You would think that because just the near, num- near numbers, like, oh, hundreds of people don't like me or people in my profession don't accept me. Like, you think that would hurt more because it's more people or vice versa. Like, oh, that's just one person, but all oh, these other people like me. It, 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 the, the pain is all the same. It's just magnified in, in the love for each of the two. So trying to mix that all into one was probably very difficult for her to, to deal with at the time. And then even Eddie going through what he's going through in the sense that, you know, I'm not being accepted professionally as well. And I don't know where his relationship is with Vicky at this time. I'm, yeah. I'm sure things aren't made very easy for him. And as we saw in Dark Side of the Ring, he had his issues and Vicky was almost washing her hands of it. So... Yeah, there is that that unique bond, uh, I'm sure, between those two that they didn't understand. Just the idea of acceptance um, as an artist and performer and also the acceptance and, and, and love that we all seek at the end of the day that, you know, 
we get it in weirder ways and people are like oh well you got you got love this way and don't you understand and you're like no it's not you don't really get <laughs> yeah. the, it's it's tough to explain and i'm and i'm rambling and i'm gonna stop and i'm doing more at work on china's episode because i felt so bad because <laughs> i fucked it up because i'm not a goddamn artist i don't want acceptance uh go ahead hey it's just all about the theme of redemption and that's what we're getting to here and that's what jake is showing with his rambling and wanting to correct his uh his feelings of past failures I'm sorry I messed up the China episode, okay, guys? I'm sorry. I said your feelings. I said your feelings, not ours. I think it came out pretty good. Someone just tweeted at us that they liked it a lot. Their profile picture was China, so, you know. And us. And us. (laughs) Yeah, and us. (laughs) So, the China-Eddie duo's first feud would be with S.A. Rios and Lita after Lita accidentally hit Eddie off the top rope not once but twice while on the same team and that led to China tossing Lita to the woman slamming Dutleys as payback. They'd wind up in a European title match at 2000's Backlash which happened to be the same night that Mr. Eddie Guerrero got his kayfabe GED. (laughs) We mentioned this in the China episode but just all the sketches they did together, and they they arrive fresh from the prom and drive up to the ring. I mean, it's so good, and Eddie's so proud of himself, and <laughs> so enthusiastic. It's like you can't help but just see how good he was with everything he worked with. And one of the best uh, Bruce Pritchard lines when he's talking about Eddie is like, "No matter what you gave Eddie, he made it work." And I think this angle and this whole relationship with China could have buried some people but eddie just turns it into absolute fucking gold yep well it's it's commitment it's a commitment to the bit and there's just enough nugget of something he can grab onto as a performer whatever it is he can he can the idea of being a heartthrob uh, is probably where he he's like oh I, i can grab onto this i can really sink my teeth in here I don't know. Eddie doesn't seem like a guy who would outwardly go like, oh, I look good today or yeah, say anything like right. that. I think deep down inside, like he would probably say in like in his darkest, quietest moments, like, man, I'm a good looking dude. <laughs> like he wouldn't let anybody ever say that. He'd probably never <laughs> right. say that outwardly. But I just the way that he can swing back and forth and with facial expressions convey that, especially during if you there's there's a different level uh, like we talked about in previous episodes when he would come out as a heel in WCW, the scowl. But there was something that was like a different layer when he would come out as Latino Heat. There was a lovableness yeah. to it that almost had a sinister feel to it at the same time, too. It's very hard to describe, but if you compare the looks of Eddie when he would come out, there was clearly a different feel when he was Latino Heat, a sense of conceitedness, a sense of something that is inherently inside of him but something that he hit and you you can clearly clearly see it in there and that's why it's comes off so good because it's genuine it exists it exists in all of us it just as a performer he's able to tap into something that he keeps secret keep hidden something he may only show 0.05 percent of the time but it's there and for him to take something that is in such a minor quality of his regular life and then turning that up in front of a camera as a performer is really truly his genius and his brilliance eddie wins this match at the end of it they strip china out of her prom dress because it's the attitude era and eddie's comedy and charisma paired with china's celebrity was starting to get them cheered so they had to turn him face 
new face Eddie would head into 2000's Judgment Day to successfully defend his title against former radical friends Saturn and Dean Malenko. Next up would be the King of the Ring, and this is the first little rough patch for Eddie and China. Eddie had beat Matt Hardy, which led to him facing China in the next round on June 19th's Raw. Eddie tricked her into a roll-up pin, and this was devastating for China because she wanted to become the first ever Queen of the Ring. But Eddie got back in her good graces by giving her a puppy. I realized in my notes that I wrote some iteration of, man, this might be Eddie's best acting performance. I wrote that on this Raw match with China, and I think I wrote it on five other things. (laughs) But um, seriously, like the way that Eddie is so conflicted in this match, and he won't punch her, and he holds back, but then he like reluctantly, frustratingly gets her in a headlock, like, ah, all right, I got to do this, but I don't want to. And yeah, please go back and watch how, how sweet and nice Eddie is as they embrace, and then wraps China up for the small package for the win in this match. It is so damn good. Eddie just, he plays all the levels beautifully. And it's kind of the first real exposure to show how good Eddie's acting was in just fucking so many layers, man. Hold on. Why did we fucking talk about wrestling when Nick was basically talking about how if a girl is upset, you get you get them a puppy. <laughs> Nick Alexander, if you know his Instagram, he has a new puppy. <laughs> Nick, what did what the fuck did you do to Spencer? Like, wh- why do you have to fucking get a puppy? I fucking schoolboy rolled her up and she, oh, <laughs> <laughs> just right. She she's she's writing for a successful show on ABC. She's just trying to get her work done, and you schoolboyed her out of nowhere. <laughs> and Mike Kyoto's in there making the count. <laughs> I, I like he he's. Looking for work and you're like, hey, Mike Yoda, I know cameo is kind of a thing, but you just kind of like count three to this match and like, okay, cool. I've done this many times before and now you got to buy a puppy. I have learned that a dog is a perfect animal to hit with a surprise RKO out of nowhere. They're like, yeah. they fall forward. <laughs> he thinks we're playing. They always no sell it though. Yeah, they I know. Fuck it. It. He's, he's about to learn some respect. God damn it. Well, and then you got to look at that. that, that uh... <laughs> I was, I, oh, sorry, I fucked it. I fucked it all up. <laughs> no, now I want to hear it. Now I want to hear it. I was going to be like, and you hit the RKO, and then I was going to sing the wrong theme song. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. That would have been even funnier. I was going to sing Edge's theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, don't know, I don't know why i don't know why that was in my head i was just like no you hit the maybe because like i don't know edge and randy orton are still yeah. fucking wrestling for the fucking 5000th fucking time <laughs> yeah, yep. because we didn't see enough of the, enough of that in the 47 minute match they had at wrestlemania <laughs> i don't fucking know nick please put that in post-production please put edge's music over top of all so Eddie would hit his own bit of bat luck in the next couple pay-per-views. First, he'd get bounced out of the King of the Ring by Val Venus, and then he'd drop his European title to Saturn at Fully Loaded. If you remember from China's episode at SummerSlam 2000, her and Eddie faced Val Venus and Trish Stratus in a match where if Trish or Val get pinned, the winner gets the belt. China ends up getting the pin. And that led to September 4th Raw, where Eddie would get his first Intercontinental title win as he laid on top of China, trying to revive her, and the ref took it as a a three count. The moment when the ref hits three, and the way Eddie's head pops up like, oh, what's that? What happened here? (laughs) I'm going to say this way too many times, but Eddie's comedic skills are fucking great, and this this match is a good example, because then he's like, oh no, 
Oh, I don't want this belt. Oh, no. China's up. Oh, I'll uh, hide the belt behind me. Oh, uh. it's just, I mean, it's just masterclass. And see, here's the thing. People will be like, well, you had Eddie Guerrero. Why couldn't you just have a, like, regular good finish? And like, no, these, these finishes is how stories evolve. And coming up for a good finish that gets people talking is so fucking difficult. And a finish that is unique that evolves a story like oh this guy is chasing the good guy or this guy is chasing the bad guy or or like the whole breakup of a fucking tag team or breakup of a couple or like coming up with a unique finish like that is just it's it's so difficult it's so it's so tough and it's so fucking rare doing like the revive thing and then it works enough you know like and you need people like who pull it off just expertly and I had a, a finish to this is very similar. Like I w- formed a tag team with White Mike, and I was trying to get him to be more <laughs> serious. And we wrestled the Ugly Ducklings, and we've just hit a combination that was basically going to be like our finishing maneuver. I cover Lance Lude, and I'm on top of him, and I'm I'm on him for the pin. I got all my weight on his shoulders, and my hands are laid flat on the mat. We just hit this big combination. White Mike is just so ecstatic. He's jumping up and down as the three count's happening. And as he jumps, right as they go one, two, he lands on my hand, which forces me up off of the pin. And I look at him like he's the biggest fucking moron of all time. (laughs) It's such a dumb little thing, but stories like that, and to me, like, I'll never have a finish as good as that. That's the best <laughs> fucking finish that I could ever come up with. And those are what advance a story in professional wrestling. Everybody's trying to think, well, he's a bad guy. Uh, just pull the tights. Put your figure. Just do it. Like, nobody puts right. the extra thought process of what is a finish that is going to progress the story. The story that we have here is we're doing the slow breakup with Eddie and China. How do we get the belt off him as opposed to her just laying down or convincing? Like, they could have just done, like, he convinces her enough to just lay down for him or whatever. Or she gets hurt early in the night. Like, hey, I can't defend it anymore. We'll tell you what, baby. I'll win the title from you. Really, They could have did the simple way out. But trying to come up with a a plausible reason, like, no, I was looking out for you. I was taking care of you. (laughs) And And when really, like, was he or was he taking advantage of the situation? So we don't really know. The, the idea of it, and he's surprised at first, but it's the idea of the Intercontinental title almost corrupting him. He probably was genuinely trying to watch over her and revive her. And in doing so, he won the belt, which he didn't expect. But when he did, he goes, oh, I like this. Yeah. I like being the champion. I'm something important. And the, the greed corrupted him and used that as the structure for the story. There's uh, that great little moment later in the same Raw where Eddie is passionately trying to convince China. It's like, nah, baby, I love you. I didn't do this to just take your title away, blah, blah, blah. And they finally have that embrace. And there's that camera shot of Eddie behind her back as they're hugging. That devious yeah. little trickster <laughs> smile that he pops out. And it just it, it puts those extra layers to the whole thing that the story they were telling. And I assume that's exactly how Nick smiled when him and Spencer embraced after everything. And Nick just let a devilish smile come out of him to a camera that didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Nick is always playing to a camera that doesn't exist. I don't know why. Just typical Nick Alexander shit right there. I watch too much of The Office. (laughs) There's a problem. But, But to put a little bow on all of this. It leaves questions, yes, and that's that's yeah, the important totally. thing where you want to be left every single week at the end of a mm-hmm. television program is questions. 
something that like I get a lot on the Eric Bischoff podcast is thinking about how can I leave people with questions because that's what will cause you to tune into something is the answer to a question. So when people see my previews for the virtual gimmick team, like, how much is this? What's this? And I go, make sure you tune in 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I've got it. I've got it saved on my clipboard of copy and paste things to put when people ask me questions. What do you think I'm going to tell you that? And then what you're going to do, you're going to message me like, hey, can you send me an invoice? And then you're not going to fucking watch. I want you to watch the fucking show so you can see how fucking brilliant I am uh, on the show. I just had Ricky the Dragon Steamboat tell me I'm great at hosting these virtual gimmick tables, these things that didn't exist fucking six months ago. And I won't go on too much of a rant, but Jake is spot on. It's just I could rant forever about how the lost art of movie teasers and how trailers now and just the Internet in general gives away all the fucking movie. So then, like, it's like I don't really care that much about going to see it. You need the mystery. You need questions. You need intrigue. Be like, I can't wait to see what this movie is about or I can't wait to see what's going to happen next in this storyline. Yeah, unless it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you can wait to see that. There's no rush. Fuck that movie. This is why an artist needs limitations, because if you give somebody free reign to do whatever they want, it's fucking not good. I'm not going to go on a rant about how that movie's brilliant, but we'll talk about that on a different podcast. Nick? The next little bump in the road for our couple here would be when China for real posed in Playboy. And I can assume that Eddie's acting performance where he totally flips out and is screaming and trying to get into the Playboy office, I assume he just copied after Triple H's behavior. Triple H's behavior? Yeah, when he was supposedly, China talked about how he was so jealous of her getting a Playboy and everything and yada, yada, yada. Well, you know what? (laughs) I know what I didn't think about that you forced me to think about now. Yeah. Is that the the original members of DX, like half of them had posed nude for either Playgirl or Playboy. Wow, yeah. Think about that. Thank God it wasn't Road Dog. That's Oh see, when I think the original DX, I think of Rick Rude, okay, uh, China, yeah, Triple H, because that was what it was before Road Dog and all them. I'm not saying fucking Billy Gunn showed his wanger to the world. <laughs> yeah, he would I, I, I mean, have you seen the size of that man's hands? I can only <laughs> fucking imagine. But no, like Eddie was fucking incredible in that, and I, I guess even like he was so believable that security at the Playboy Mansion thought this was a deranged man trying to get in <laughs> at one point in time, or went through the do- wrong door or whatever. Just the scenes of just filming at the Playboy Mansion, of course, obviously, like it's WWE Attitude Era. Of course, like we have to film at the Playboy Mansion. That's like all the goals and dreams of the Attitude Era was supposed to produce, you know, like, because we need to up the ante. We need to be so popular as a company, we go to the Playboy Mansion. Basically, the Attitude Era was basically like the 14-year-old boy that's like, you know what? As long as I make it to the Playboy Mansion, this is the greatest thing ever. After that, there are no accomplishments in fucking life. If only they could have set up a table on, like, an inflatable raft in the grotto of the Playboy Mansion and powerbombed somebody into the pool through the table, I think that's the only way they could have got closer to what they wanted. Just when it appeared that Eddie and China were going to break up, he proposed to her and she accepted. But we'd never get that Macho Man Elizabeth wedding. We wouldn't even get the Rufy rom-com Triple H and Stephanie wedding because soon after, Eddie was caught in the shower with two of the Godfather's employees. Oh, congratulations on PC talking about the ladies that came down to the ring with the Godfather. I appreciate that <laughs> on, on the way that you would say employees. Uh, somehow it rides a line of disrespectful and respectful at the same time, but uh, it is accurate. You are not wrong. 
his girls were also independent contractors who cannot gain income from a third party source. So full circle, <laughs> full circle. They're filling out 1099s <laughs> just the same as the wrestlers. After breaking his mamacita's corazón, Eddie was once again a heel. He'd uh, team back up with the Radicals, and they'd feud with China and DX, mostly China, Billy Gunn, Road Dog, and K-Quick, a.k.a. R-Truth. I did not fucking yeah. remember Ron Killings in year 2000 WWE. What? At all. Are you, fucking, are you fuck off, man? And the second you saw that man, and it, he debuted on like Sunday Night Heat, and he goes, I'm K-Quick. <laughs> I just remember him saying his name so fast. It's like when somebody tells you the name and it's like a wrestling name or a gimmick name, you're like, oh, yeah, that's you. I'm like, of course you'd say because you said your name so quick. <laughs> K-Quick, get it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then, like, he was trying to get the road dog and telling him he was road dog's friend. Like, he's basically doing what he did with the 24-7 belt. He was doing it back in Sunday Night Heat. K-Quick, quick, I'm going to bother you. I'm going to do a little segment. We're going to do this. And then let him go out there and rap. <laughs> And then he rapped the song, and then all of a sudden Road Dog's like, guess what? You're going to be with me, and we're going to rap together because <laughs> I saw you, and I realized I, can, I should be rapping too because I, my name is Road Dog Just Jade. I'm from Pensacola, Florida. Of course it would be fantastic to rap. <laughs> Let's do this. And then so like they formed this weird tag team, and we, we are not for the better that uh, Road Dog left, no. and we didn't get more K-Quick and Road Dog. I guarantee we probably would have dabbled in something that wouldn't have stood the test of time oh, uh, because of insensitiveness. <laughs> so, because, <laughs> I mean, you know, it would have been interesting for sure. But that it, you don't remember it is is shocking to me because the second that I saw Ron Killings, the man, man was a fucking star. He's always been a star, always will be a star, and he will always be 24 years old. <laughs> The Radicals face DX in Eddie's first traditional Survivor Series match. Even though Eddie was eliminated early, his team got the win. And on Thanksgiving, Eddie's Intercontinental Championship run would come to an end when he lost to Bill Gunn. B Bill Gunn? <laughs> it's weird when you say it that way, right? It just it's Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Please amend. William uh, Gunther, how about that? It makes it even weirder. That is his real name. They just shorted it down. It's not, it's not Kip Saka. No, it is uh, it's actually William Gunther. And they just, they just chopped it off. In early 2001, Eddie was right back in the IC title scene, looking to take on now champion Chris Jericho at 01's No Way Out. Basically, the entire 93 J-Cup would have a match. You have Jericho defending his belt against Eddie, Pegasus, and X-Pac, and it's a fun, chaotic match with a Justin Incredible cameo. And I'm going to be a little bit of a dick. There was no J-Cup in 93. It was 94. Oh, whatever. So Fuck off. Best dude. of the Super Fuck Junior. Yeah. Goddamn Redditor. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll co-sign on that. You should fucking know that. If I said that in front of Dean Malenko, we would not be the friends <laughs> yeah, of right. Right. Just to so clarify. Yeah. Uh, and he would fucking correct me. I promise you that much. So I'm glad somebody stepped in for the sake of professional wrestling. I spent 20 fucking minutes. Actually, I spent probably, if you add it all up, 35 minutes talking about the build-up to the super jacob in 94 and Damn. then the ramifications in professional wrestling that's basically yeah. what the entire fireside chat with dean malenko was about like let's just start at the super jacob because wow. i have fucking questions 
I've been in Eddie Guerrero research for like six months now. I don't even remember at part one. I don't remember. And 93 was such a big year. So I just keep coming back to 93 Eddie Guerrero for whatever reason. Not 95 or 97 or these other. Just 93. That's the number that sticks in my head. The glory days. Eddie said they only had uh, five minutes to prep for this match. So they just call it out there. Uh, Jericho kind of Houdini's a sneaky roll up on my boy and retains his title. Failing to win the Intercontinental title, uh, Eddie would refocus on the European belt, eventually meeting Test at what many consider the greatest WrestleMania ever, number 17. Eddie gets the win and picks up the European title again. And in classic Eddie fashion, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a pay-per-view where Eddie with the European title in England obviously gets on the mic and talks shit about the entire continent and the title that he is holding. He doesn't want to have the title. And it, it's it's good, easy heel shit. Just Eddie shit-talking his own title in the place that it represents. And seeing, like, Eddie Guerrero take on test, holy fucking shit. This is, like, yeah. second or third match in. Yeah. This match is incredible. If Eddie's crushing it with test, what the <laughs> yeah. fuck do we <laughs> have to look forward to for the rest of the show? And it is... This match is incredible, and all the other matches are equally incredible, if not fucking better than. That's what's so great about WrestleMania 17. It should be definitely on the list of shows to show to people. Like, this is how great wrestling can be. Yeah. And if if somebody has no idea why wrestling's great, you show them WrestleMania 17. Funny thing about WrestleMania 17, this is when I was, it was like a first year of college. And the cable company that carried the Monday Night Raw USA Network in our dorms, that cable company was having a fight with the USA Network. Uh. So they took wrestling off the USA Network. Actually, no, no, they didn't take it off the USA Network. They, they, whatever cable company carried it was off that cable package. So right. I didn't get to see Monday Night Raw. So I'm like, fuck, how do I, how am I going to pay attention to, to wrestling? This is before the internet was like the go-to. So I guess I could have went to WWE.com, but I'm like, fuck it. If I can't watch Monday Night Raw, I don't want to fucking watch wrestling. Monday Night Raw every week. And it was leading up to WrestleMania. And this is how much I love my fucking parents, first of all. My mom would buy the fucking pay-per-views and record it. And we only had a VCR on the main TV in our house. My mom would hit record and leave it just running and leave the fucking room and then watch TV in her bedroom the rest of the evening. Pay-per-view would stop. She would hit stop record. She would then mail that tape off to me so I could watch the (laughs) pay-per-views. That is why my mother is going to heaven, guys. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. So she was continuing to do that even though I wasn't watching Monday Night Raw. And she sent me the tape for WrestleMania, and I'm like, I can't watch this until I see the uh, the Raws. And then all of a sudden, WCW closed, and like, there's Monday Night Raw. I'm like, well, fuck, now I'm going to definitely be behind because of the same fucking thing now. And so then somebody had to give me a, a, a verbal rundown of WrestleMania 17 just so I could be caught up with Monday Night Raw. And then I had to retroactively watch WrestleMania 17. So it's like, ugh, like, <laughs> so I'm like seeing it after the fact. It's old news now. And I'm like, God, oh, I wish I would have saw this fucking live in the moment, yep. experience it. But fuck, man, it just it still holds up to this fucking day. I, I saw it like just a few years ago, and I'm like, man, this is this is as good as it gets. This is as best as it gets. And I should have just been like, fuck it, I'm just gonna watch WrestleMania as soon as my mom sent me the fucking VHS tape and 
did what she fucking did because she's a, she's a goddamn fucking saint. You, all you kids that ha, that want like, oh, I don't pay attention to the raw. I just watch it on Twitter. Or I can just stream it on my phone. Fuck off. <laughs> You'll never know how much your parents fucking love you like I do. Okay, because that's what my mom did for me. Is just take up the whole fucking living room to record a paper you on a VHS tape and then fucking mail it to me because I fucking love her. So, so far, Eddie had a pretty great run with China. He's won some belts. And overall, he's had a better time than in WCW. But as we mentioned in part two, Eddie's car wreck while in WCW had long-term effects, and they weren't just physical. Eddie was slipping deeper and deeper into his drug use and alcoholism, and soon his entire life would begin to spiral. Personally, Vicky wanted a divorce. Professionally, Eddie got so bad that Dean, Perry, and Pegasus went to the office and told them they were concerned, fearing that if something didn't change, they were going to lose their friend. That led to Eddie showing up to work where he was told that J.R., Bruce Pritchard, and I assume Conrad wanted to meet with him. They said they weren't there to judge him, get a fucking grip, but Eddie didn't listen. There's moments in the... I think it's on the first Eddie DVD set that WWE put out, and it's one of those like 50-minute documentaries. And when we hit this moment in the story, and you get to Dean and Pegasus talking about like they didn't want to wake up to news that one of their best friends has died. It's just you can feel in that moment how much those two dudes who they all rode with throughout the years and years and years, how much they cared about Eddie. It hits so damn hard, and you can see the heart through and through. Well, and I, I've, you know, heard the stories of, like, after the shows, they would ride together, especially, like, as Dean's kind of, like, phasing out his career, and Perry's kind of going off and doing his own thing. It was, like, it was, like, Chris and Eddie, and, like, Eddie would get, like, super drunk, like, after the show, and Chris is basically, like, driving as, like, Eddie's, like, passed out fucking drunk. He would drink, like, a whole bottle of wine, or he would drink whatever, and just get fucked up after the show, because he's so bummed out, and was so messed up. And Chris is like, we got to get to the next town. But this guy's more concerned with just getting messed up. And it was like, it put a big toll on him. And then it makes me think back to the days, like how I was after a show. I'm like, I got to get, I got to get drunk like immediately after. And the times that like, I just flipped the keys to Charlie Dreamer or Caleb Connolly. Like there, I'm going right. to, I'm going to get, I'm going to get messed up after the show as fast as possible before we even leave the venue sometimes. Or if there is some place where I can go get drunk, that's close by. I'm going to finish my match. I'm going to go get drunk because I'm done off work. You're driving. Or like, oh, as soon as we're done, let's get to a bar so I can get drunk and then toss the keys to you so we can get to the hotel. And just thinking about all the times that I did that. You know, luckily I had friends that were good and took care of me, but I can only imagine what what it was like. Because as I've always learned, it was always the pursuit of the high is what really where the damage is. Like, I, like, I'm trying to be as sober as possible, and I keep a bottle of whiskey in my house. People are like, well, you're sober. Why do you keep a bottle of whiskey in your house? Because I know that me going to go find a bottle of whiskey will be the thing that destroys me. If I know it's there, and I reckon with it, I'm like, okay, it's there if you need it, but don't go it and get it and need it. That's the thing that keeps me from leaving my house and doing something destructive. Or feel like, oh, well, I don't have any alcohol in the house. Let's go to a bar and do this. And then the time in between from the bar to the house is where the issue comes up. Or anytime I leave the house, at least I know I can be here if I need to be, if it gets that bad. But it is always, it will always be the pursuit of that and how that, that messes things up. And, and also, to being close to somebody who can't pull the nose up out of that as well. And the frustrating part, like thinking about the dark side of the ring where Vicky talked about 
Eddie just being messed up on the couch and just be like, well, if he dies, I hope he does because I can't take this anymore. It's a very, it's a very real feeling when you have somebody who you're close to who's inebriated most of the time. You, they're not present in that relationship, and like, if especially if there's kids involved and you have to, or other responsibilities, even if it's a dog, and you're like, you're messed up all the time, and you're not, you're not taking care of the dog, you're not taking care of this, you're not taking care of the house, you're just coming home and getting messed up every single night. But yeah, it's a messed up situation. A week after Eddie's first meeting with JR and Pritchard, things really jumped up a notch. He and Vicky had a huge fight, and that led to Eddie throwing back a bunch of pills and getting super drunk. Problem is, he had to fly out for TV. So a fed-up Vicky helped an inebriated Eddie board a plane. He somehow managed to get to the venue and was still just obliterated. The Dudleys and the Radicals tried to cover for him, but word got back to the office, and this was the last straw. It was May of 2001, and WWE gave Eddie an ultimatum, go to rehab or lose his job. To WWE's credit, they put him in the best rehab center in the country. They paid for everything. Eddie went through a brutal detox and then the 12-step program, and after four months of treatment, Eddie made a ton of progress, but unfortunately for him, he was still very far away from rock bottom. Upon leaving rehab, he was informed that his reckless spending habits were catching up with him as he owed the IRS six figures. Eddie filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. He lost his house, his cars, his boat. Out of rehab, he was separated from Vicky and the kids. Eddie got an apartment in Tampa, and for the first time in his life, he was truly alone. Not able to cope, Eddie lost his sobriety as well, first grabbing some drinks with his friend Turi, then his brother Hector. And while trying to make a comeback in Heartland Wrestling, Eddie slipped up once again. He went bar hopping. The next morning, he was so drunk that when he tried to drive home, he couldn't remember the code for his security gate. So he just tried to ram his truck into it. They caught the cops. Eddie got a DUI. The story hit the papers. That got back to WWE, and Eddie Guerrero was fired. I think this is the instance where he told himself, like, I'm just going to have one glass of wine. I'm just going to have one yeah. drink. But then Eddie learned that I, I can't have one drink because one drink always turns into more and more. And it's a slippery slope that he had to learn really fucking painfully. And it, and it creeps up on you, man. Like, it really it really does. I mean, the the first real big slip for me as far as alcohol goes is obviously i've said multiple times i'll, I'll rough it like a lot of stuff has gone for me up good and bad last several months uh, i think the thing that just kind of happened is that you know like i'd been sober for a while but then all of a sudden i i hadn't had a drink in a very long time and like i was trying to support lo local businesses and my bar up the street where i get all my bar food because they serve chicken wings until 2 a.m so i always go to steamers and so i want to keep them in business because i want to yeah. make sure that i can i can get food at 1 30 at night because there's so few places especially now that have food available at 1 30 at night and i'm a vampire so i need food that late at night so i was just trying to support local businesses and get takeout food because i don't want to stick around too long but like it's just when things started to open up for bars and while i waited for my chicken wings i'm like well why don't i get a beer why don't i just get right. one beer and, and i'm like ah oh, it feels good 
And it, and that's all I'd have. I'd just have the one beer while I wait for my chicken wings. But then, like, I would be getting my chicken wings every week, and I would get a beer every week. And then all of a sudden, like, I hit another bump in the road personally. And then all of a sudden, like, it went from one beer to two beers. So all of a sudden, going home and open up that, that bottle of whiskey that I was telling you about before and start drinking out of there. And see, the key is always for when I when I drink. And I, and I can have, I say that I can have a beer every once in a while, but like I said, I know how fast it slips, is that I would have one drink. And if that drink feels good and I order a second drink, I better feel all of the fucking guilt in the world so much, in fact, that I have to fucking choke that second one down or, or walk away from it and be like, I can't have it because this is destructive. I've done an awful thing. I've killed muscle growth. The workout I got today was ruined. What, like, I need to feel all the fucking guilt in the world when I get that second drink. And if I feel like, oh, I deserve like a little like, you know, three fingers of whiskey. If I have that first sip of whiskey and I don't feel all the guilt in the world, that's how that evolves so fast. That's how it escalates so quickly. And it's just something as simple as I'll take one beer while I wait for my chicken wings. And then it, that devolves into, oh, fuck. I, I, okay, I need to get super fucking drunk when I get on this flight. I need to be absolutely completely fucking shit face. As soon as I land, I need to hurry up and get to the hotel bar, get a beer to go. Well, I get in this fucking hotel room. Oh, I got to hurry up and get back. And I'm going to I'm gonna open up the fucking whiskey. Yeah, okay. If I start drinking early enough, I can get two or three drinks. So I can get really fucked up and just pass the fuck out. You know, like, and that's that's how it starts. It's not so much like you have one drink and then you're fucked. Yeah. It's the second one. It's the second time. It's, it's the thing that opens it up. That's the one that gets you, is not feeling that past the second one that's what opens the floodgates i mean you could have the one and it's a bad experience and sometimes that's the thing that kind of wards you away from it because every once in a while sometimes i would do this thing where i feel like i need to relieve the pressure of that that alcoholism and sometimes i would have a few and realize it's a bad idea and that would be the thing that continue on my sobriety for six or eight months sometimes but like if i didn't have that little like thing there i could have broke a couple of times broke easily so that that's the thing that I think like my experience and my battles with alcohol. So, so it is just that one drink, but it's also getting that second one is where the real difference happens. There's a Denzel Washington movie called flight where he plays an alcoholic airline pilot. And there's a moment in that movie that I will never, ever fucking forget. Denzel's a recovering alcoholic. He's been clean and sober. I can't remember the time frame exactly, but there's this moment where he, he is at the bar and he's finally had enough, and life has just had its toll, and he orders two shots of vodka. And the way that Denzel sells it, and the way he experiences just the emotional journey of finally doing those two drinks is just fucking heart-wrenching. And throughout Jake's entire story, that's all I could see and all I could feel. And it's just, oh man, it, it, it just fucking hurts to think about. And he was fired November 12th, 2001. Alcoholism had cost him his wife, his kids, his home, his reputation, and now his entire career. Finally at rock bottom, Eddie was ready to change. He went to AA and got a sponsor. He dedicated himself to God, got back in the gym, and after the longest stint away from the business since he was a baby, he started getting back on shows. Eddie said he didn't want to be another one of those guys on the indie circuit who blew it and just kind of lazily bounced show to show, just hoping and praying that WWE would call him back. 
He wanted to go out every night, whether there were 25 people, whether there were 300 people, and prove that he was one of the best wrestlers on this planet. And that is exactly what he did. I heard this story from Les Thatcher, and you brought up Heartland Wrestling, and around this time too, especially when he was sober, he recognized that he had to work very hard at his sobriety. Les Thatcher would tell the story that, you know, he's like, you know, Eddie came to me and knew I had a ring available and asked if he could work out in the ring, and was there anybody that could, he could hang out with that was sober and wasn't a big drinker or a partier, somebody he could kind of hang out with, and... Les was like, yeah, we have Jamie Noble here. He's a good hand, and you can call him up whatever you want. Here's a key to my gym. This is when we do training. You know, we do have a second ring here, so you can use it then, but just to let you know that if you want a free reign, it's here. You can do it this time. You can have the whole gym to yourself if you want some privacy, but you can have it whenever you want. We have a second ring, and, you know, it's it's free for you to use whenever you want, Eddie. And he would basically just call up, you know, Jamie Noble, and like, hey, let's go do it. And Les Thatcher always told the story that he ran a class well, Eddie was in the opposite ring with Jamie Noble, and they would basically just chain wrestle, wrestle around, work on the basics. I mean, get get your ring up, not do anything too crazy, maybe try a thing or two, but really get in there and just work and work really hard at it. And Les would always talk about how they would be in there for over an hour. Jamie Noble, just him, just him and Eddie and Jamie Noble just wrestling around that the, the mat would be just soaked with sweat <laughs> when they left. Because ring shape is very important to keep because once you lose it, it's very tough to get back. And during this pandemic, all of this happened. I didn't know, you know what was going to happen. I knew I had to keep in ring shape. I was kind of scared of what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. And it was, this, that, it was that story that inspired me to get up with Lucky Ali and I go, hey, I need you to go to the ring with work out with me and just kind of you know i'll you'll learn a little bit of stuff we'll work on the timing and we would just get in there and we would we would wrestle until we soaked the mat there's a couple of times we had to stop training because we had soaked the canvas so much that it was dangerous to run rope Damn. spots because we were slipping <laughs> on the canvas so much and we would wrestle for a minimum of a, an hour every single time i put the alarm on as soon as i got in for an hour and then like we would wrestle for an hour sometimes it was more chain wrestling sometimes we'd do more bumping but it would never be like the way that these fucking kids train in the ring now where they like oh, let me try this oh let me try this and then they sit around they talk and it's like no we get in we lock up we chain wrestle we chain wrestle we finally when we're loosening up let's start doing some rope spots do some bum spots all right let's get more unique let's tell a little story let's put some psychology to it and then let's get through some a big long ending spot let's go through it boom and we're done and we just work real hard for an hour get in we get out and like it was this time in eddie's life that i tried to emulate during this time of my life, especially as, as things got more difficult for me mentally. And as I started to struggle with my own sobriety, it was remembering this moment in Eddie's life and how hard he worked is the thing that got me through what I'm going through right now. And now, unfortunately, like Lucky Ali had to move back to Washington. So now it's like trying to find a new JB Noble is where I sit in my, my, my point in life. And because I haven't had the opportunity to do that, I feel like I'm much more angry irritable because once you are a wrestler and you don't wrestle like it is the thing that defines you you feel a bit incomplete and that's where i currently sit right now is trying to find that person to wrestle with so I, these get-togethers with jamie noble were definitely the thing that were the binding force in his sobriety and his life and also probably getting back to the way he probably started 
And I wasn't Eddie going in there like, hey, let's let me do tornado DDTs and uh, like frog splashes left and right. He goes, yeah, I, I, could, I know how to do a frog splash, but let me just kind of hone in a little bit more on the rest of the stuff. I think what's so interesting about Eddie's shoot interview to RF video one is Eddie recorded it and chose to do it right around this time. You get to see him in his most vulnerable, in his most fucked up and recovering, but also gracious and humble. It's so fascinating to see him at his weakest and his just most, almost his rock bottom when he's just slightly coming up from it. And to see him voice everything, it adds a much more interesting aspect to his shoot that you definitely should watch. The first promotion to call up Eddie was Impact Championship Wrestling in New York, ran by Jack Sabbath. They wanted him to come up and do a draw with their champion, Loki. But Eddie was like, no, 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 no. Let me put him over. And everyone was like, whoa, 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 what? Because most guys coming down, they're like, nah, brother, I'm not going to lose to anybody. And, and it's also the aspect of like, wait, Loki's a dick. Yeah, that's, a, I don't think win? he was a dick yet. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was more of a reason for this. I mean, this is giving Loki yeah. fire. Like, listen, I, I must right? go over. I must honor the <laughs> legacy of Eddie Guerrero, who put me over in Impact Wrestling. <laughs> but that's the thing about it. Like, it's gracious about Eddie. Also, like, that's the self-awareness of Eddie that I think a lot of people don't have when they come off of WWE. Some guys, uh, they try to overly do it. Like, oh, no, no, I'll put the guy over. It's no big deal. And they don't realize what they're doing. And, and they're just trying to, like, fakely do it. Where, like, Eddie recognizes, like, no, I'm going to be Eddie Guerrero yeah. afterwards. Like, I'm going to be I'm gonna be Eddie regardless, no matter what. So why don't I help make somebody? And not just be like, oh, I'm going to let him win, and I'm not going to put him over. I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to put him over. Like, no, like, let me actually fucking show everybody how great this guy is. Bring him up to my level, and then make him a bigger deal. That's what Eddie was going out to do and just letting somebody win and putting somebody over are two distinctly yeah. different things. And that is the difference mm, between right. what Eddie is doing. He's not just letting a guy win. He's putting somebody over and asking him, what do you want to do? What are the things that you like to do? What are your moves so I can take them better than anybody else? And understanding like, Hey, there's this budding thing of independent wrestling. I, I need to help nurture this. And I don't know if this is the particular indie run or not, or this was something that happened before WCW. I don't know where to place this, but I knew this section was going to be mostly about indies. And this is going to be, if we're going to talk about Eddie Guerrero being on the indies, this is going to be the spot. So I kind of save this, this story for this particular spot. I can't really place it for sure. But this is a story that I heard from George South about Eddie Guerrero. And this is something that, you know, speaks volumes of who Eddie Guerrero is. And I definitely think it was after WCW someplace. So it might have been in between. I'm not 100% sure. But George South, an Italian stallion, somehow, I think, booked the old Coliseum here in Charlotte, Independence Arena, for a big, uh -huh. like, church youth gathering thing. They were booked to do a wrestling show. They had some sponsorship money. They had radio stations. And if it wasn't the old Coliseum, it was someplace big that was a traditional wrestling venue here in Charlotte. And they had a very large budget to bring in whoever. They had Superfly Jimmy Snuka, a previous episode or two. Uh, and then uh, other, bigger, other big stars, uh, Ronnie Garvin. Uh, the list goes on and on. It was just a jam-packed show. And they booked 
Hector Guerrero and Eddie Guerrero. And I think I'm almost positive this is, this is definitely post WCW because George was talking about how Eddie had already been on TV and was kind of a big star at the time. And George always said, it was always be like, oh, listen, I like Hector, but Hector could be a little difficult to deal with. And Hector, like, obviously saw this was a, like a, didn't recognize the, the situation of how the show worked because it was like a youth thing that I think a lot of kids got in for free and it was, it was all the money for the wrestlers was paid for by sponsors. But Hector was like, there's 5,000 people or 2,000 people and you book me for this rate? No, I should be getting more because the Guerrero name means something. And this look at this house we draw when really these kids are getting it for free or five bucks or a dollar or what it was. It was cheap just for this sort of because it's a much larger thing and the money was coming from a different place, not ticket prices. And, and Hector w was, was having a hard time understanding that. And he was kind of getting very heated about it. And, they, and George and Stallion were trying to convey this to Hector. Well, Hector's having this very intense conversation and Eddie walks in like he wants to say something, but he doesn't want to interrupt what's going on in this very serious conversation. So he just kind of politely waits. And as George would describe, he goes, he was just sitting over there like, like a little schoolboy, <laughs> just waiting there very patiently, not saying a word. Just let just let Hector be Hector because Hector could be that way. And just they just let him do it. And, and, and Hector got it all out. And finally, Hector finally understood and then walked off. And then as soon as Hector walked away, uh, Eddie was like, uh, excuse me, um, uh, George and, and Stallion. And they're like, of course, please, let's let's see what this other girl is going to yell at us for. And Eddie very politely was like, hey, I know you guys are the promoters. And I just want to ask if, if this is OK. But is it all right if I use the frog splash tonight? Because I know Jimmy Snooker's on the card. And I don't want to take away from the Superfly splash. Is it is it okay if I do the frog splash? I already asked Jimmy. He said it's okay. But you as the promoter, I want to ask you if it's okay. George is just like, and this is why I love Eddie more than all the other Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he just had this intense conversation with Hector. And here's Eddie politely waiting his turn <laughs> to talk to the promoter, to get the okay from the promoter after already talking to Jimmy Snuka, to do his goddamn finishing maneuver. Yeah. Like, the reason why, why you booked him. Like, yeah. it just explains how polite and how sincere and how Eddie as a wrestler and somebody who understands the business truly is in the sense that he understands the bigger picture and how the promoter would feel and doesn't want to step on anybody's toes and the overthinking of everything but like just the level of taking the time to, to have that conversation but yeah i I, can, I don't know exactly where this was and it, it might have been during that time that he was wrestling in ecw because him and hector had matching usa gear so it, it's tough to place in george's memory so you just kind of take where you get. So I figured this was a good spot to, to show how respectful he was of these local indie promoters. He he treated them with the utmost respect as opposed to, you know, I'm just getting a payday, brother, waiting for Vince to call me back yeah. up. I mean, it's that different attitude that he had, and he approached it differently than everybody else. So Eddie said that this wasn't his intention whatsoever, but as soon as he lost the low key, pretty much every indie promotion in the world was like, oh shit, this dude's putting guys over. So he got like all the work out of it. Which leads to uh, February 23rd, 2002, Eddie faced super crazy on the first ever Ring of Honor show. The Era of Honor begins for the IWA Intercontinental Championship. Well, and also to... I think I think I might have even said this on the Trent Asset episode, but it should be reiterated here, is that the Northeast Indies 
had this weird thing going on after ECW closed. You had CZW going in the direction of like the hardcore deathmatch type stuff that you would get in ECW. Ring of Honor was more of the wrestlers, wrestlers type stuff, the Jerry Lynn's, the Justin Credibles, Rob Van Dam type direction, because those are the two things that ECW had is that we have the wrestler wrestlers of the world. And we also have the blood and guts wrestling of Tommy Dreamer, Raven, the rotten Sandman, Brian Lee, choke slamming yeah. Tommy Dreamer through everything. And then also too, we have <laughs> the Demolinkos of the world. We have, you know, the super crazies. We br- we're bringing in Taka Michinoku. We were the first to bring in great Sasuke and Michinoku guys it's only fitting that you take somebody from the lineage of ecw's wrestlers wrestlers to be here at this ring of honor show it just it laid the foundation and if you wanted more of an example of what was going on and the split between ring of honor and czw and how they were offering two different products that existed in one particular product you're not going to find a better example than that 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 was an intentional thing that was happening Huh, what are your thoughts on Scott Levy? <laughs> Dynamite <laughs> drop in, Nicholas. Oh, speaking of uh, the blend of hardcore wrestling and normal wrestling, March 1st, 2002, this motherfucker went to IWA Mid-South. He yeah. faced a maskless Rey Mysterio Jr. and CM Punk for the IWA Mid-South Heavyweight Championship. And in true Ian Rotten fashion, these three all-time fucking greats don't get a bottom rope. <laughs> that, I was fun. about to say that if I could say <laughs> one thing about this match, Jake Manning did not set this ring up because these ropes are saggy <laughs> as fuck. It's like you're watching. There's an extra layer of suspense and just yeah. worry <laughs> because you're like, please don't fucking get terribly injured, guys. Please. Oh, I've set that particular ring that it was fucked up. I have set that thing up before. Because that was the ring that was used for a lot of the NWA No Limit shows that would happen yeah. in Iowa. Uh. And I have set that fucking Ian Rotten <laughs> ring up before. <laughs> and that shit is fucking disturbing. <laughs> uh, like, that, those ropes, I don't know what the fuck they are. Um, they're, uh, they're of a different fucking thing altogether. Then you would have the, the plywood, which I believe... They weren't just like plywood and, you, and there's a thing in the middle to put them together. You had plywood on hinges. So that way, like you had two pieces of plywood and they'd have a hinge in the middle and the hinge would go down the middle because there was nothing to hook the, the plywood into. So the plywood is just flying all over the place. But there are two pieces that are hinged together and you fold them up and then you put them on the trailer that way. So obviously slamming on top of each other, the hinges would come apart and screws Jesus. would be popping out. Oh so, my God. And, and, and of course the hinges, because there are two pieces of plywood and because they would go across the ring, the, the screws Jesus would be Christ. sticking up. So there's ah. screws sticking in the middle of it just ah. randomly of the ring. Then the padding was carpet padding. Not like good carpet padding that came in like a full roll, but that <laughs> particle padding that they make from different particles. Jesus so you God. only roll that out a couple of times and it starts deteriorating. So obviously the screws are, are poking out at the appropriate height for it just to like kind of like, like, ooh, what was a little prick that I just felt right there? <laughs> uh, but not fully dig into your skin and you're wondering why you're cut for whatever reason. 
But then, of course, that particle carpet padding would start wearing away because they would leave the ring outside uncovered. Uh, So that would be deteriorating and falling apart at each one of the shows. So at certain points in the ring, especially close to the ropes or definitely in the corner, you'd just be bumping on straight plywood (laughs) that is also rotting as well. And, and and busting apart and those slivers are popping through the fucking canvas which is the most disgusting canvas you will ever fucking see in your entire life there are no turnbuckle pads basically what they have done for the actual corners is they had just taken tape and just <laughs> went over it oh a multitude God. of times over the, all of the steel it. parts This'll so there's zero padding but there is probably two inches there's more tape over top of the metal parts of the turnbuckle pads in the corner than there is padding <laughs> on the fucking ring yeah. and that is the fucking ring that Rey Mysterio <laughs> and Eddie Guerrero saw when they walked into IW Mid-South a show where there was maybe 40 people in a fucking armory and like granted he went on to be uh, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time one of the biggest wrestlers of all time but at this time he's a guy wrestling in mesh <laughs> shorts with fucking a, a Pepsi tattoo and a Cobra Commander logo tattooed on his arm with straight edge across his belly and of course this is in a time where if you don't have fucking abs don't even fucking talk to Vince McMahon <laughs> if I can't fucking see the fucking veins in your fucking forearms and you're not six foot five do not even send a tape into us they put that on their goddamn website. You must be six foot two and 250 pounds to apply for WWE. That is what they put on their fucking website. And now, Ray Guerrero and Eddie Mysterio show up. And then also Eddie Guerrero and Ray Mysterio show up. See this entire cause of events. And they're like, you know what? We're going to do our best stuff tonight. And just, what the fuck? And we can't even get Robert Gibson to like be like, hey, uh, Robert, the show's running a little bit long. You guys are going to be in the ring at 945 instead of like 915. Is that okay? Fuck this. <laughs> like, what the We're fuck? What the fuck? Uh, unbelievable. It, the, the fact that they even got in the ring and even put on like a headlock match. Beyond me. Don't even understand. And then, like, the video clips of Eddie Guerrero wrestling Colt Cabana in front of, like, 20 people. Like, a- any of the IWB South stuff with Rey, Myst- with Rey, My- well, Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero is just, it's mind-blowing yeah. that it fucking happened. Mind-blowing. And if you're questioning if we're in the darker timeline <laughs> or not, uh, know that this, this had happened. And also, too, like, I think... Um, Eddie even said himself, or like the, the, like a lot of guys have, because I was not too far removed. Like a few years later, I'm wrestling on shows that were kind of co-promotion with IW Mid-South. So like a lot of the guys that were in the locker room when I was wrestling for NWA No Limits had been in locker rooms with Eddie Guerrero and been in matches or been around him or experienced him. And something that, you know, Ian would, would probably say is Eddie came out to him and wanted, he's like, I, w- I want to wrestle the young guys. Is there anybody any one of the young guys that's got a lot of promise also too i I really don't want them hanging around any big partiers and ian rotten's like well if you want to be sober and the guy who's not really a partier but a cool dude yeah just gotta see him punk like you really should latch on to this latch on to this guy if you're worried about sobriety this guy's he's he's straight edge and that's what you need you need a promoter to be like hey no this guy's cool right like ian and and eddie would would have known each other 
So like when Eddie's like, hey, who's somebody I need to latch on to? Like, oh, no, no, latch on to that guy. And sometimes that's the thing that gets someone like an Eddie to grow. Be like, okay, well, this kid wants to do this move or this thing called Pepsi Plunge or he wants to hit me with this or he wants to do this pump handle, whatever. Sure, I'll do that because I, I want to spend some more time with this kid because uh, the promoter says he's got potential. Also, too, he seems like a good kid. Also, too, I think it's, it's good that I'm around him because like I'm worried about my sobriety. I know if I'm around him, he's not going to be out back getting high. He's going to be in the locker room. He was going to want to go over the match. He's going to want to talk about what we want to do and make sure it's the best match we could possibly do. And I want to be around guys like that. Fun side note to these IWA Mid-South matches. Eddie got stuck in Chicago and actually crashed at CM Punk in Ace Steel's house. So that's fun. Aww. Speaking of Punk, Rey Mysterio back April 2019 posted an old picture of him, Eddie, and CM Punk from the three-way show. And then Punk obviously had to chime in because he couldn't help himself. And Punk had these following words to say. People should know how good Eddie really was. He was in a rough spot. Recently fired. Home front was turbulent. He came to this show and looked tired. Said to me, I hate three ways. If it's okay with you, can you and Ray put something together and just call it for me in the ring? I wasn't sure that was possible. He didn't miss a beat. And then CM goes on to say later, It was one of the early times I remember being in that ring in my career and thinking to myself, This is fucking magic. A pleasure. An honor. And yeah, I kind of marked out reading all that stuff. Just three goats giving respect and helping each other become as great as they were. Eddie would also go work in Japan, but as he was about to leave for Japan, he got a call from John Laurinaitis from WWE, and he told him, don't sign anything long-term with New Japan. We're thinking about bringing you back. And they'd end up offering Eddie a base contract, just like any other brand new wrestler. Eddie would come in, start completely from scratch, which he was more than happy to do. And as we mentioned, Eddie shot his shoot around this time. And one of the last things he said is that it was still his dream to be a main eventer on a pay-per-view. And April 1st, 2002, Eddie would climb the first rung of the ladder in doing so. And that is where we will pick up on Eddie Guerrero Part 4. You guys got anything before we wrap this up? Well, as I said throughout this episode, I... I, I painted a lot of parallels to me and Eddie and and I, as I've said before like I just I it's such an inspiration to me in, in my rougher times of my career or dealing with alcoholism or dealing with like man am I ever going to get to do the thing that I love so much I've I've turned to what Eddie Guerrero did in this time period now I don't know if I'm going to get the success that we're going to talk about in the next part of Eddie Guerrero but anytime things have gotten tough, I just think about what would kind of Eddie Guerrero do. And this is definitely the, the rough part of his of his career, of his story, of his life. And I think if you're going to go through some rough times, you've got to come up with a plan and how you're going to attack it. And I think that's exactly what Eddie did during this time period and sowed the seeds for his upcoming success. And that's what we'll discuss in the next episode. Thanks to everyone donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash TimBellPod. Uh, check out TimBellPod.com. You can find all our social media there. You can listen to the episodes there. Uh, I wanted to say this real quick. 
don't just do this for us do this for everyone you follow but facebook and instagram is doing this thing where they'll only share your posts to five percent of your audience unless you give them money which is kind of their whole business model you, you drop them ten dollars a hundred dollars whatever so not only someone at like tim bell pods level not only your favorite independent wrestler not only a band who has a thousand grammys if you want to interact with them and make sure you're getting all their posts, you got to go to Instagram or Facebook and turn notifications on. And that's the only way you can guarantee that you're getting everything they put out, that you're getting these sweet, sweet Jake Manning tent memes I make. So uh, make sure you do that. Again, not just for us. Do that for anyone you want to support because otherwise they're paying a bunch of money to Facebook and goddamn they're an evil fucking piece of shit company if i were you i'd high till it right the boot scoop boogie out of here hello this is micah joseph loving for tim bell pod i don't know why i told you my middle name nobody gives a fuck about a middle name but i did that just letting you know about patreon you probably already know about it but me jake and nick do all types of cool bonus episodes kind of cut loose lose our minds it's a blast those usually run you about five bucks if you want to get a hold of those, but any dollar amount would be appreciated. I don't know what else to say, so Patreon, fart.